If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. Joe Biden has promised 10 days of action on four overlapping crises in his first days in office. He's casting the emergencies of coronavirus, the economy, racial injustice and climate change as one big Venn diagram of trouble. But what specifically is he going to do about them? And what about the fifth unspoken crisis of the Biden administration, the one so serious that Biden is treating it very gingerly? healing the rancorous division in American society, bringing back reason-based politics and taking the heat out of what is perilously close to becoming a cold civil war. To help me make sense of all this, I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by Edward Luce, Associate Editor of the FT and author of The Retreat from Western Liberalism. Hello, Edward. How are you? I'm great, thank you, um, considering the circumstances. Exactly. Well, I mean, we are recording the day before the inauguration. What's it looking like in Washington? Are you able to go to the end of the street and pick up a loaf without having to go through a checkpoint? Yeah, I'm in the bit of D.C. that most of D.C. feels normal, although fairly quiet, because I I think most of the government employees are being given time off. But, um, of course, you have that Baghdad-style green zone, which is heavily fortified um, and just doesn't feel like America. Yeah, I mean, people have been wondering about what the legacy of Trump is, and uh, it is entirely possible that legacy will be a militarised capital and a presidency's fighting for their safety. Indeed, indeed. I mean, uh, the protesters are probably, uh, they're going to succeed in keeping them away. The bridges across the Potomac linking to Virginia have been closed off. There's pretty much no way you could get more than three or four people semi-armed past uh, any checkpoint that would pose any threat. So I, I'm not expecting street violence tomorrow. Yeah, well, thank you for Donald Trump for turning the world into a bad Tom Clancy novel. Um, every time we try and talk about Biden, we end up talking about Trump. My challenge today is to try and stay away from Trump and talk about Biden. Let's take those four crises that Biden has named uh, in order. Coronavirus. Trump's negligence gave America one of the worst records on the virus in the world. 400,000 people are dead, twice as many as the next worst in Brazil. Edward, the New York Times called Biden's vaccination plan maddeningly obvious. Vaccinate 100 million people in 100 days using federal aid and a federal umbrella to do it. Am I right that this is a project on the scale of, of the New Deal? And it is, this is a, a grand historic thing. It is. I mean, he's, uh, Biden's already proposed a $1.9 trillion stimulus, $400 billion of which would go to a massive stepping up of the vaccine program. And I don't think there's any there's anything on this scale in terms of a single goal project that I can think of. I mean, I guess over time that the NASA moon pro- shot might compare, but a hundred million in a hundred days isn't necessarily doable. It's he set himself quite a steep task, um, and if he achieves it, I'll be surprised. Is it possible to identify the organisational failure in Trump's approach? It's a mixture of Trump's organizational failure, first and foremost, from not providing basic sort of public messaging about um, this pandemic. Secondly, the Operation Warp Speed did succeed 
in incentivizing. I mean, this was a heavy, heavy public-private sector collaboration. It did succeed in incentivizing a lot of companies to accelerate a lot of clinical trials. And so that was a success. But then they stood back and applauded themselves and pretty much did nothing else. Um, the, 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 real, the real goal here is to get these shots into people's arms. And it's extraordinary that January the 19th, more than a month after the first vaccine became available, still only 12 million shots um, have been administered. It, it should have been an order of magnitude higher, higher than that by now. So, yeah, great incompetence, no follow through. A president who's more interested or solely interested in arranging some kind of fantasy judicial coup and took the eye off the ball at the key moment, really, for vaccine distribution. I think you were, you were tweeting yesterday that even if Biden does get 100 million Americans vaccinated in his first 100 days and then does it again in his next 100, it's going to take until late summer, early autumn for herd immunity anyway. That's the best case scenario. Is this the thing that will kind of condition his, his the first year of his presidency? Is this what the yardstick is going to be judged by? Um, I promise you that within two weeks... If, as expected, the mortality rate continues at the same level of about 4,000 dead a day or higher, which it'll probably go to in February, the Republicans will be accusing Biden of presiding over mass fatalities and mismanaging the pandemic, that there is no shame um, in American politics. How Biden's um, plan will be judged, whether it will be judged as a, as a success or not, it depends a lot on the information wars that I predict will start without shame from from day one. It will clearly be a lot better than it would have been had Trump remained president. But that's not how people tend to measure things. Yeah. Uh, Biden's also going to launch a 100-day masking challenge, uh, imposing new mandates requiring masks on federal property, also interstate transportation. Is he going to be able to make that stick in, in a society where masking, or rather not wearing a mask, has become a political badge? I think it'll have some impact. The federal property around America is not where most Americans live or go. So, you know, technically speaking, it doesn't, it doesn't affect that many Americans. But the clarity of the message, the fact that you know, lots of governors and uh, mayors will be um, citing that message to enforce local um, mask wearing, some of whom will be Republican, I think is going to make a difference. Uh, but I think the key thing here is getting the funding to put in place not just the vaccine distribution and production system, but also still the basic um, contact tracing and testing that America hasn't yet sort of brought up to the level it could have. It, it could have got up to a sort of a South Korean, Taiwanese level months ago if this had been a priority. In that respect, Biden, you know, is inheriting low-hanging fruit that he can pluck. And we, we ought to see a dramatic improvement in things, I think, fairly quickly. Do you think that's mentioning the uh, the shameless tone of American politics at the moment? Do you, do you think you're likely to see the introduction of the you know big state Democrats want to run your life narrative into into masks and vaccine? For sure, um, these are socialists. They're trying to take over. There's going to be there's going to be a renewal. I, I um, would expect of anti-vaxxer sentiment that this is big pharma and Bill Gates and George Soros, etc., trying to take over your life. So refusing a vaccine, like refusing to wear a mask, 
will um, be a symbol of, uh, of freedom or, or fighting back against socialist, liberal, communist, Chinese-funded oppression, etc. You're going to get, unfortunately, a lot of that in the coming weeks. So it's going to be an information war as much as anything else. Is Biden likely to have Republican support, particularly for this vaccine pandemic effort, which should by right be a bipartisan thing? Other is he like other areas of the party where he's likely to get support? I think you'll get some support from some Republicans, particularly at the local level. Republicans tend to be, or at least Republican governors, not necessarily state legislatures, Republican governors tend to be more pragmatic. I'm thinking of Charlie Baker in Massachusetts or Larry Hogan in Maryland. I mean, there are plenty who are governors that can be congratulated for vaccine distribution. So there's less grandstanding at that level. And I think you're going to get better cooperation from states because there's, um, the federal government will be providing something it hitherto hasn't been providing, which is leadership, help, guidance, coordination at the national level and at the sort of level of what, what I think of as the sort of um, Fox conservative entertainment complex. There's going to be, I think, a lot of craziness in, in the coming weeks. You can't fix the economy without fixing the virus. The the second of the four key crises identified is the economy. There's a, a $1.9 trillion COVID economic recovery package in the works, which includes, I believe, bigger stimulus checks, more aid for the unemployed and those facing eviction, support for small businesses, states and local government, and so on. American business and economic stimulus is Byzantine and incomprehensible from this side of the Atlantic. There isn't really an, an analogy in British politics. How big is the scale of the economic task here? It's huge. You know, the American economy shrunk by more last year than it has at any time since the Great Depression. Um, this, this is, you know, unprecedented in, in um, outside of war or depression to be faced with this scale of poverty, of hunger. And we're talking about not quite um, developing world, but sort of middle income world levels of hunger and deprivation here. This is way above the you know, the Western European average, the exposure that the pandemic has brought to the lack of childcare, um, particularly for essential workers, which is something his bill is is going to try to address. You know, that's been pretty huge. There's been a what Obama would call a teachable moment, a really bitter and nasty teachable moment about the fragilities of the American economy, but also of the scale of America's precariat brought out by this pandemic. And his bill, rather ambitiously, attempts to address all of these things. I think by the logic that you only get one shot, you're not going to be given you know, part one, part two, part three. The difficulty of getting something of this scale through means he's loading it all into one bill. And it's going to be interesting to see the degree to which he can get any Republican cooperation, which he will need to pass this in the midst of a parallel impeachment trial of, of, of Donald Trump. The Democrats do control by a sliver both houses now. To what extent does he need that Republican backing? Is it possible to get this through by that sliver, by that Kamala Harris casting vote? Well, so the, the complexity of the system here is that you can get bills through with 51 votes if they are purely fiscal. All are, and you can confirm people. Um, including judges or uh, administration nominees, but everything else requires 60 votes. 
if the congressional sort of rules say that this is not a fiscal bill, and a lot of it is not fiscal, then he's going to need 60 votes. So uh, the reconciliation process for pure budgetary matters would be sufficient for, I don't know, reversing a tax cut or, you know, having um, a, a spending increase for vaccine rollouts, for example. But for a lot of other stuff, you're going to need at least nine Republicans because um, Kamala Harris would provide the 60th vote as vice president, as president of the Senate. And I don't know how this bill would break down, but they would they would have to they would have to break down the bits of it that are budgetary to pass and the rest presumably wouldn't pass. And when there's a political payoff for particularly new Republican members of Congress for not supporting Biden, then presumably that makes the task more difficult. Then. It, it does. I mean, a lot is going to depend on what more comes out in the coming days and more is coming out about Trump's collusion and the collusion of those around him with the January the 6th rioters, assaulters, marauders, whatever you call them. Um, and Mitch McConnell, the Senate, former Senate majority leader, now minority leader, is wavering on what to do about the Trump trial um, and whether to vote to convict or not. If evidence comes through that's pretty devastating um, from the FBI in terms of, you know, kidnapping plots, execution plots, then I think that you have some possibility there of the atmosphere changing in Biden's favour. Just the talk that we've heard from um, certain uh, senators and um, uh, members of the House of Representatives that those members who aided and abetted, or if they're found to have aided and abetted the invasion of the Capitol, they can be expelled from public office. Is that is that possible? It is, it is possible. There isn't really any precedent, or at least not within living memory. But um, it is possible. And it might be a way, for example, Lauren Bobbitt, um, the, the young congresswoman, um, QAnon supporting congresswoman from Colorado, is alleged to have taken some of the militia protesters on a, on a tour of the Capitol uh, in the days before January the 6th with um, the storming of the Capitol in mind. If that can be established, then I would expect it would be a clean and easy way for the still very small minority, Liz Cheney, part of the Republican Party, to get a temporary majority to expel somebody like that. But that, you know, this is not something that happens normally. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley in the Senate would be two others. You know, I think they're a little bit cleverer than Lauren Bobbitt um, and that it would be quite unlikely for for to imagine that happening. For senators to expel their own sets a precedent that would make none of them comfortable. Another of the key crises that uh, Biden's people have identified is racial equality, source of the, the tumult over the summer. We're about to see the first black vice president and the first female veep. Biden cast this in the election as a plan of supporting black-owned businesses, increasing home ownership among minorities, enhancing access to education, very much not defunding the police. It was very much a, a, a technocratic solution. Do you think there's as, there's as much meat on these particular bones as there is on, on the economy and there is on coronavirus? Uh, it, it's an interesting um, and slightly puzzling sort of facet of this Biden transition that Kamala Harris has not been given a big role. She's Often vice presidents are given sort of large chunks of portfolios to be in charge of. 
Um, nominally, I guess, Mike Pence was in charge of the pandemic and the coronavirus task force. Dick Cheney, as you know, was really the national security vice president. Al Gore was reinventing government. Kamala Harris doesn't yet have that. The, the portfolio I would expect her to be given um, would be criminal justice reform and racial justice more generally. And that hasn't yet happened. It's quite hard to target measures at minority that aren't more general economic measures for those who are socioeconomically excluded. So I think their response would be, look, a stimulus like this that expands child support, raises the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and you know invests in um, student loan forgiveness and so forth, will disproportionately help minorities. That would be the argument at this stage. But there will doubtless be specific initiatives. Do you think Trump's managed to successfully brand anti-racism and racial equality as, as somehow inherently violent over the summer? Because it was such a repeating theme of his uh, of his election campaign. I, I to some degree do, unfortunately. Um, you know, the number of people that I've spoken to or heard saying, equating the stop this deal and violence on January the 6th with the uh, Black Lives Matters protests is extraordinary. And you point out that one of them, the BLM protests, is based on an underlying big truth. And the other, the, the stop this deal is based on an underlying big lie, is not that effective. Um, you know, it's hard to dispel mythology with fact checking. So yes, th- that, that sort of sustained propaganda has, I think, had an effect. The fourth sector is climate change, again, deeply connected with the economy and, and racial equality. It tends to be the cities that flood tend to be minority cities. Biden is promising to mobilize his entire administration in the climate change efforts. He's packed his cabinet with climate change experts. He's expected to rejoin the Paris Accord very quickly. He's cancelling the Keystone Pipeline on day one. Do you th- how much of this is involved in simply undoing and rolling back Trump's own climate change rollbacks? A lot of it is to do with that. To be, um, I mean, rejoining Paris on day one, you know, is a very symbolic act. But Biden is a lot more ambitious than that. Not quite as ambitious as the rest of the field were in the Democratic primaries, but considerably, considerably more ambitious than the administration he's uh, the Obama administration in which he served um, was. He, he he plans to hold a global climate change summit sometime in his first few months as president. He plans to have a several trillion dollar green tech investment to retrofit, upgrade, and sort of leap forward the American economy. And uh, he he plans to incorporate climate change more generally into foreign policy. The fact that John Kerry, the former presidential candidate and Secretary of State, is his climate change czar is very significant. It might cause it might cause some bureaucratic problems for, you know, um, for joined up government because Kerry is, a, a, you know, a famously monomaniacal um, uh, individual and um, will be considerably more senior than all the people around him other than the president. But it is a, a measure of how seriously Biden takes global warming. And if you look at, you know, the exit polls for the November 3rd election, Climate change was a massive issue amongst the young voters, and and turnout did increase in amongst voters under thirty. Climate change was a major reason for that. Is it going to be possible under these circumstances for Biden to kind of throw the ball so far up the field, as it were, that future Republicans can't really 
bring it that far back? Is it possible that he, he can establish a new climate change stance in the United States? I'd like to think so, but um, I, I wouldn't bet on Republicans being unable to roll back whatever it is Biden is going to um, achieve. You know, in 2008, when Obama won, his opponent, John McCain, uh, which I, well, I was here then, covered that election, had a very um, ambitious climate change plan, which was based on science, um, that this was a man-made problem of global warming. The Republican Party has retreated, regressed so far on this issue. And Trump has been you know, such a sort of rocket booster of, of that regression that I would find it hard to believe that the Republicans are suddenly going to um, see the light of science and simply quibble about the means as opposed to the end. We've got a much deeper cognitive cultural problem in American politics and arguments are not really about empir- empiricism. They're, they're about they're about faith, if that's the right word. They're about belief systems. And the Republican belief system is that much like the pandemic, uh, much like QAnon says the pandemic's a pandemic, that it's all a myth, that climate change is, is also um, basically an invention of people who are anti-American. And that finally brings us to that unspoken fifth crisis, uh, healing the division, ending the chaos, bringing American politics back to reason. Is that going to be possible with Trump heckling from the sidelines with QAnon still roaring away? Uh, You know, Biden, um, probably more than any other figure in American politics, is the embodiment of sort of cross-party decency. You know, he's been in politics for 50 years, national politics. He's got more friends um, in the Republican Party, I would wager, than any other Democrat. And he's got more sort of proof in terms of his record, not just as a senator, but as vice president, and in the way he has conducted himself during 2020 in the campaign and since, of being restrained, not name-calling, of appealing to the better angels of America's nature. So if there was ever going to be a time where the proposition was tested, can American politics still work, or ever a person, that then it would be in a Biden administration. Um, so I think he's going to do his best. He will frustrate the left. The left wants heads on pikes, quite understandably, given what's gone on in the last four years, and particularly the last few weeks. Biden is going to resist that. And uh, if Biden can't succeed, nobody can. He's being very hands-off with impeachment. Uh, is that wise? Is impeachment of Trump going to overshadow uh, Biden's initial moves? It could well do. Um, it could it could sort of begin his administration in a sort of poisoned atmosphere of um, you know debate about his very poisonous predecessor. Um, but it could also, just on a more practical level, take up legislative time in the Senate because these trials can go on for days and days and days. And he wants to hit the ground running. He wants this 1.9 trillion stimulus passed. He wants an immigration, a fairly ambitious, I'd have to say, immigration bill passed. And he wants to, um, you know, have a, a very impressively active first 100 days. This all cuts against that. I mean, I, I would expect that ultimately the better path here for Biden would be to get this trial over quickly, almost certainly fail to convict Donald Trump, but to empower his Attorney General, Merrick Garland, 
to pursue the law blindly, apolitically, in a nonpartisan fashion to its fullest extent and just say, I'm the president, you're the attorney general, I'm not even going to talk to you. You have the power to do your job. And if that leads to the prosecution of Trump, then so be it. I will not even talk to you. That is what I expect will happen, whether that you know results in, in, in Trump being led away from Mar-a-Lago in handcuffs or not is, is another question. But I think it's probably the more practical path for, for Biden to take. Edward, this has been absolutely uh, fascinating and in many respects sl- slightly cheering because you just imagine that, you know, uh, Biden's inheriting this kind of burning dumpster, but you've at least given us some idea of, of, of how to, to put that fire out. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks for joining us. It's a great pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Listeners, there's a new daily every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday and the panel show every Tuesday morning. We'll be following the Biden presidency throughout and you can help us by backing us on Patreon. You'll get the podcast early and without adverts plus smart merchandise too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thank you to Edward Luce. The retreat from Western liberalism is available now. How, how, how's that retreat going, Edward? Are we, have we turned it around at all yet? Uh, there's a possibility of regrouping. Good. That's good. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. (laughs) 